And welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Tim Farmer. Now Tim is a record producer and engineer. He's worked with some amazing artists throughout his career in all different types of music genres, mixing Pearl Jam's debut album 10, as well as some tracks on U2's 2000 album, All That You Can't Leave Behind. He was nominated for a Grammy for that album. By age 21, he had his first number one single, Mixing Cutting Crews, I Just Died In Your Arms Tonight. He's produced Tears For Fears, their albums Elemental and Raul and the Kings of Spain. Shares a great story about the artist he had to say no to to work with Tears For Fears. As well as working with Robert Plant. And he produced Tin Machine. That project featured David Bowie. And this weekend, the 2023 David Bowie World Fan Convention will take place in New York City. It'll feature a ton of people that worked with uh, Bowie throughout his career. That includes Tim. Tim will be there speaking about his time working with David on Tim Machine. We go into some of the other artists that Tim has worked with as well. Very engaging guy. I learned a lot and I hope you do as well. And here's my interview with Tim. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So this weekend is the uh, David Bowie World Fan Convention. It's going to be in New York City. I mean, he's one of the artists that you can actually do this about because I always feel like he's influenced so many people to get into the music business. It's kind of like the Beatles. The Beatles started it where everyone you know, saw them in Ed Sullivan and basically want to be uh, musicians. And I feel like Bowie was pretty much like the next guy, you know, in the next generation of artists who, who he inspired. Um, how did he inspire you? And then we'll get to working with Tin Machine. Well, first of all, I'm, I've got to say that I'm pretty excited about the idea of coming to New York for this. I, I've never done anything like it before. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be great. I, I actually want to go because I want to meet some of the people that played on some of my favorite records. Right. So, um, it's as much fun for me as anyone else that's bought a ticket, really. <laughs> um, I mean, David Bowie obviously was a big influence to me growing up as a, as a music fan. Um, in my teenage years, I got into punk rock, and that was where I really started taking a, an active interest in bands and music. But of course, at some point, everyone discovers David Bowie. And, and even as a young guy hearing, you know, um, Space Oddity and Life on Mars, I, I did actually buy those with my pocket money as, as singles. Uh, and I was always aware of David Bowie. But I mean, how can you not be affected by David Bowie's music? I actually like the more extreme version of him in the sense of Lodger and Scary Monsters. Right. Period. That, you know, we'll probably talk about this later. The, the, the 80s period, David Bowie was probably my least favorite. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, what an amazing artist and what a, an honor it was for me to actually um, be part of something that he was creating. Right. And he's, you know, reinventing himself a lot, just putting out new stuff, just, I'm sure, because he wants to just, you know, he had an idea and just did it similar to Robert Plant, which we'll get into in a little while. But the whole like concept of Tin, Tin Machine, which, you know, that album was was really good, and I, I still listen to it. How did um, he contact you to start working on it? And did you even know what Tin Machine was at first? 
No, and Tin Machine wasn't anything. time that he reached out to me, and I'll never forget that first phone call, of course, um, at that point he was working on his next solo record. Um, he was clearly looking to change it up, even, I could gather that even by that very first phone call. But the reason that he called me was because um, he, he was obviously being influenced by a lot of um, music that was very different to the 80s, uh, Let's Dance period. Um, sort of sound, 80s sounding music. He was now into that next phase or beginning to listen to music, whether it's Glenn Branca or Sonic Youth or the Pixies or any of those sort of bands. They were the sort of things that he was listening to. So he wanted to work with someone that was working with guitar bands. And uh, I was A, very young and I must say very inexperienced too, but I was young and I'd worked with bands like um, the Mission and the House of Love, and I'd also worked with Robert Plant, but a lot of guitar-based bands like Mighty Lemon Drops, stuff like that. So I was sort of young and doing guitar music, and I was uh, recommended to um, Reeves, who was the guitar player in Tin Machine, from Billy Duffy from The Cult, who I'd met through working with The Mission. So it all connects up. At some right. Point. And I was um, lucky enough to be able to ask Billy about this later, because I saw The Cult play recently, and he, uh, he did confirm that he did put in a good word for me. Okay. <laughs> I'm grateful for Billy for that always. And um, yeah, I got the phone call and David was talking about working on new music with Reeves in Switzerland. And he asked me if I'd like to come out and, uh, and be part of that. And of course I jumped at the opportunity, uh, who wouldn't? And uh, 
he asked me some of my favorite Bowie albums and, and he said to me even then he said I think you'll be excited by what we're doing so uh, yeah it was uh, amazing really I always say it's always good to get help to get in, into the door but it's on you to not get thrown out the door yeah so you know it's obviously you know he, he liked what you what you brought which was really good now you said you were obviously a huge Bowie fan how do you keep that fandom like inside did you kind of geek out when you first got the job and then it's like all right it's business as usual um well of course the the beginning is tough the first time that he walks in yeah and uh funny story about that so he said look let's meet up uh you fly into switzerland we'll start doing some recordings on this date and i was okay great and i sort of had that date branded into my skull sighted and, and nervous i must say about that date and when the tickets arrived i foolishly just assumed okay well i'm flying in the day before we start work and i i actually didn't double check the tickets so the day before i was due to fly i was at home and just chilling out and listening to some music and uh, the phone rang and it was the owner of the studio that we were going to record in and I said, oh, hi, how's it going? And he said, uh, great, except where are you? And I said, I don't know what you mean. And he said, you were, we came to meet you at the airport. You weren't there. So I'd actually, the most important gig probably in my career at that point, I hadn't okay. actually bothered to turn up for the phone. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was obviously devastated and got on the phone and, and I called David and said, look, I'm, I'm so sorry. I just assumed that I was, I, I, it was a terrible mistake. I should have double checked my tickets. And he lived up the road from Mountain Studios in Montreux. So he said, look, it's fine. We'll go down. We'll get, make sure our guitars are all set up and stuff like that. And we'll see you tomorrow. So um, that was a, a great start to, uh, to the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I, I now with all the technology of getting you know, notifications via email, text, that wouldn't have happened. But now with back then with the paper tickets, you know, you, you put them on your desk and you know in an envelope that was on the the sideboard, and I just didn't didn't check them properly. But but as you said, I mean, the thing about um, an opportunity like that, it it is the intersection between ability and opportunity, and yeah. that was the opportunity, and I did have to be able to do my job and a very big part of being a music producer and engineer and mixer is being aware of what the artist is trying to achieve helping them towards that goal and also being someone that they can enjoy walking into the studio and spending the day with so if you are a prickly sort of personality in any sort of way you can find it more difficult there's no doubt so being somewhat you know amiable and like easy to work with is is, is a very important quality right and you know you have like a lot of hats so and everyone who listens to the show pretty much knows the you know positions but a novice who just is turning on the show what's the difference between a producer and a mixer well it's changed actually quite considerably over the last 10 20 years originally um and most of the records in the 60s and even into the 70s if you were the record producer on the album you were contacted by the label played some music and you made a decision at that point between the two of you that you wanted to work together. Then at that point, you would assess the demo recordings of songs that they wanted to make for their record. You would decide with the label which songs you wanted to record, and then you would work on the arrangements and make sure that you felt the arrangements were in good shape. And then you would start to something called pre-production. Um, you probably book maybe two weeks in the studio, which 
obviously nowadays with, with low budgets, it's not going to happen. But we would spend a week or maybe two weeks working on the arrangement, which is the order that the song plays out in. And then from that point, you would take the band into a studio, help them with the recordings, get the best performances, choose microphones, try ideas out with parts, etc., etc. And once all the recordings were in the shape that you felt they were done and it was ready to take to the last stage, which is called mixing, then you could move on to that stage. And in these, as I said, in the 60s and 70s, the producer and the engineer who'd worked with you on the recordings would just carry straight into that mixing. And between the two of you, you would finish the record, present it to the label, and it would be done. In the, in the um, towards the end of the 80s, well, I say towards the end, towards the end of the 70s, I'd say, the beginning of the 80s, labels started to think, well, maybe this producer and engineer are a little too close to the record and there's some magic in there that they're missing. So what about if we bring in a third party who specializes in the mixing part and he can work on the recordings and maybe bring out some stuff that could be overlooked or maybe they have a sound that they could add to the record. So the mixer as a separate item became born. Uh, one of the first people to do that was a guy called Tom Lord Algae. He was the first one I was aware of. Bob Clearmountain was also one of the right. first people to do that. They were brought in specifically to come in at the end. Sometimes they were brought in the end at the end because it wasn't very good the way the producer had brought it and they wanted somebody yeah. to elevate it. Sometimes it was about a fresh perspective, but a mixer as a separate role was definitely born then. And um, fairly soon into that, I was able to, to take on that role as well. But that was the basic difference is that the producer would create the recordings and work with the artist and a mixer is someone that came in at the end and looked at all that had been recorded and most of the time worked on their own and then presented you a balance of the, the song the way they felt it was the strongest and um you know there's a lot of good in that and there's some negative but it's 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 the way it is to this day and in fact as music recording has progressed it's gone into even more small subsets Nowadays, you have people who are just called vocal producers okay. and artists such as, you know, people like Adele or whatever, they'll work in a studio with someone that they enjoy just working on their vocals with, and they can be just the vocal producer. So you have a separate producer, separate vocal producer, and people in the hip hop world, they have separate people making beats, making the music tracks, the, the, yeah. the rhythms. So it's got very fragmented, but originally producer, an engineer, then producer, engineer, and mixer, and now loads more subsets have appeared. Right. And now imagine with the technology, it's changed when you first started in the business, not even working, I'm sure, with artists directly, right? Everything can be done remotely or even just, you know, via email sending tracks. So do you prefer like working with directly with the art artist, like in the room with you, or do you like being kind of separate and just dealing with them when you need need to? Well, it's one of those things, it's definitely good and bad in both of those scenarios, there's no doubt, depending on who the artist is and depending on what you're trying to achieve. Right. But, um, being able, as I said earlier, to connect with an artist and, and understand their vision and read the situation, knowing how, how do I make David Bowie comfortable to sing a great performance or Ozzy Osbourne comfortable? Um, that was a skill that you had to figure out yourself between working out the personalities and whether they were a nervous person, whether they were overly confident person, whatever it is, you've got to figure it out and then work out the best way to do that. So your ability to read people and work with people was a massive part of the job. And as you said, now with technology, 
I work probably 90% on my own now. So those qualities that I may or may not have are not really required anymore. In fact, sometimes I'll send a mix off and uh, I can just do it by text, uh, which is really strange. So I don't see the artist, speak to the artist. And there's been, um, there was a record I made with the Polyphonic Spray a few years ago. And I, I uh, took this, what they recorded, and I played some extra parts, new guitars, various stuff like that. And um, the first time that I met them was I went to South by Southwest and they played a show. And I said, oh, maybe I'll come down to the show. And they said, well, maybe you should play some of the parts you played on the record. So I put my robe on because they all wear these long. Right, robes. yeah. <laughs> I got on stage and I played the parts I played on the album for the first time whilst meeting the band. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty bizarre, I think. Yeah. Um, but um, the good and bad, I mean, there's no doubt that being able to be left alone and not having somebody over your shoulder saying, oh, I don't like that. And you say, no, no, just wait. Just wait, it's not finished yet. And be able to let them, you know, hear yeah. that, that what you're trying to achieve finished and then only present it when you're happy is a good thing. Um, it's sad because you don't, the, the bad, one of the bad parts is when the band would all pile in to listen to a mix you've done or you were working with them, you got to hang out with them and tell stories and, yeah. you know, and that was great. Right. <laughs> and I loved all that stuff. Who wouldn't? Um, but I did a, another example. I did a record recently with Jeff Goldblum. Okay. A lot of people said, oh, man, you did Jeff Goldblum. What's he like? Uh, nope, never met the guy. Never met him. I did a whole album with him, and I got a, maybe an email, and that's it. And that, that's, that's disappointing. Yeah, I, I could imagine. I mean, hopefully, you know, someday you'll bump into him and say, hey, I worked on your album. And like, oh, nice, cool, yeah, great. Like, which artist, I mean, if you can name them, would, like, hover over you the most? And like kind of like share their input a lot robert plant used to like to come in and, and hag, ha, hassle and haggle me that was that was part of his thing robert really uh, is a taskmaster he really works to bring out the best in all these musicians to the point where you know sometimes they it's quite hard for them because he knows how far he, and our, uh, his musicians can be pushed and he makes sure he does that um with the mixing i remember him coming into the studio one day and, and uh, saying, hey, the bass is very quiet. And I said, oh, okay, um, well, I'm not finished yet. No, no, why is the bass not loud enough? And I said, oh, it's fine. And he's like, no, no, I want to know why is my bass on this track not loud enough? I, are, are you not being paid enough? Is there a problem? And he'd really wind you up, you know? Um, but um, yeah, he, uh, he knew what he wanted things to sound like. And, and I think, you know, most artists, how they want their record to be uh, just some people are more hands-on than others because some of them nowadays can actually engineer themselves um which makes it difficult um i was working with a prog rock band recently and the artists um the, the, the musicians themselves were probably as as good a mix as as i could be and uh, that was challenging because they had very clear views and i had to say look you've asked me for my interpretation um, and you're paying me for that interpretation. It seems rather silly if I'm trying to make it the way you want it to sign, want it to sound. So it's it's challenging, right? And that's where like the outside voice comes in because producer. I mean, when you have an artist be their own producer, sometimes yeah. they're using themselves, and you know you need a fresh you know perspective. So that's I always feel like that's good. I mean, it's not always better. I mean, it's your perspective, and right. uh, if they don't like it, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, you are just being you have to be true and honest and sometimes brave um, yeah. with decisions you make and 
touch wood, most of the time people say, oh, that's great, so much better. And every so often, it, it only makes sense that some people won't like it. And now you're saying before with artists, you know, even like mix their own stuff now um, with addition, like, you know, Pro Tools and, and stuff like that. Were you like an early champion of, of Pro Tools? No, not at all. No, okay. Um, I was slow to join because I had had probably 20 years by that point of making records and really enjoying them without even looking at a screen. Um, there was a small screen on a, on a certain consoles at the mix stage, but it literally would just say the mix name. Now, there certainly wasn't waveforms and things right. that you could look at. Um, so I made the first half of my career was all analog and a lot of enjoyment and a lot of good times and some good sounding records. So the idea that it was going to be turned on its head, I was sort of fighting it for a while. And it was only when I realized that it was becoming so popular. And if I didn't figure this Pro Tools thing out, I'd probably be shortening my career quite <laughs> considerably that I thought, okay, I better try and embrace this before it's too late. So I got some money together to buy a rig, set it up in my dining room and got somebody to show me and slowly but surely I got into that. And now I absolutely love it. And it's right. the most powerful, um, incredibly creative thing that you could even imagine to have at your fingertips. And there's so much more control than we ever had. But again, like everything we've we talked about, there's definitely good yeah. the old ways. And there's definitely good with these ways. I, I do miss the idea of not using my eyes to do my job. I would rather it would just be my ears. And I make a point of switching off my monitor when I'm listening so that you can't look at things because yeah. it affects your decisions. When right, you can, of course. You can see that they're wrong. You want to go in and fix it before you've even listened and realized that that thing that was wrong is actually quite beautiful. Um, so it's a challenge, yeah. Has there been like a song that you've mixed that, you know, you can't even listen to anymore? That it just like, I don't know, not, not bad experience, but you spend so much time on it and it's just like, I can't deal with the song anymore. And when you hear it, you turn it off or it brings back a memory or something like that. Uh, well, it's definitely true to say that um, when you hear the music, you do remember the vibe and the people and stuff like that. And um, uh, I made a record with the Goo Goo Dolls that okay. didn't end the way that maybe I would like have liked it to end. Um, it was a challenging time for some of the members of the band personally. Okay, so it came out on me at times, and it was quite hard work to to work your way through that so i liked what we did and i think we did some great stuff together and i know everything's fine now but i can't help when i hear that music remembering how i felt about what was going down in the studio and i guess that that, that that's true to to many records but fortunately for me most people i've worked with have been great right yeah now when it's it's like tense in the studio like being like you know, the, the producer had, you kind of have to be the parent, I would assume sometimes, right? You know, to, to, to the artist, do they always listen to you? Um, they, um, once again, that's a, the way that you approach them is very important. Yeah. Um, if you realize that there's going to be some fight coming from an artist about change, then you better approach that in the right way. And if you make it all about yourself, then they're going to be less likely to want to do that. So, you know, there's certain ways of presenting your idea to an artist. Maybe 
<laughs> it's a funny one. A lot of producers will say, hey, you know that idea that you came up with a couple of days ago, knowing full well it was something that they'd come up with. Right, yeah. So it's more palatable to the artist to think, oh, did I, did I come up with that? Oh, yeah. Well, let's try that again. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. Um, so the, the way that you work with the artist, as I said, and being you have to be sometimes as a producer, you're the dad and other times you really are not in that role whatsoever and they wouldn't want to be patronized in any sort of form. So um, a, a producer's role changes so dramatically from project to project. Sometimes you work with an artist and you hear their demos and you think, wow, what I must do here is make sure that they don't change it because they have something magical going on and your job is in a way trying to protect them from themselves by messing up what they're doing really well and it almost seems lazy because you'd be like well i really like what you did on the demo there let's just stick with that yeah seems very uncreative but you know you can make a terrible mistake by changing things for change stake or ch or making something seem perfect when something that's actually sloppy is actually better and more emotional so sometimes your job as a producer is being um keeping a reigning abandon and keeping them true to what they do well and other times it's looking at a project and thinking wow we need to really come up with some extra parts to elevate these choruses so it's it's about coming up with guitar lines with them and really changing things up and improving what they do and and sometimes you're working with an artist that's great and they play well and you just want to capture the best performance you can so you can sit back with a not that i smoke cigars but sit back on the couch with a fat cigar and let right. them do, and say that one that yeah. one that was the one that was great and that's yeah. that's the easy producer's job but other times it's literally you've got a guitar on and you're sitting with a guitar player and you're trying to work out parts together to try and improve what they're doing so it changes so dramatically has there been an artist that you kind of heard a particular like reputation about them and then it was completely different working with them with your experience um i'm sure that has happened i used to be given the job of working with um, some of the more difficult artists because they they felt that I was good at uh, managing that situation. Right. As I said, by listening and not being patronizing and trying to understand how they saw things is a big bonus. I mean, the truth is that with with any piece of music, there's way more than one one way to fix a potential problem. So if you're the sort of producer that says, "Look, your chorus needs this." It can really get the backup with an artist rather than, hey, this chorus, we agree, needs something, right? It's something missing from it. So let's work on that together and then try and bring that idea out of them. Then they feel much more comfortable because it, it stays as their composition and it's all about their personality and their musical sensibility. So it might take more time. It might be easy for you as a producer to say, look, I know exactly the part you should play. Just do this. It'll be good. That yeah. might be slightly generic and you know the easy fix. Right. Sometimes if you're prepared to go the long way around it and work with them, maybe you'll come up with a way to fix it that's much more unique and memorable. And let's face it, that's what great songs and records are about. It's not being generic. It's like you remember the things that make them different. You remember people's voice sounds rather than their ability to sing. And we, we love Leonard Cohen. We love David Bowie. We love Ozzy Osbourne. And, you remember the sound of their voices really and um you know not who really wants to hear someone that can just sing well yeah. so many people can sing well but we're looking for a voice right 
we're looking for an emotion and uh, trying to bring that out in any way you can in any recording is, is, is I, I believe is key. Right. And earlier we talked about just getting your foot in the door. You know, you got that opportunity with, you know, David Bowie. So how did you get your foot in the door in the business? Well, the foot in the door in the business was born out of just a love of music and not, and not, I didn't go to university. So I didn't really know what I was going to do. I played in a band and um, that obviously was not going to be a professional thing. I wasn't good enough as a, right. as a singer or a performer. So we recorded a couple of demos with the band and I saw for the first time the people behind the scenes who were working the console and the engineers and how they could help the process. So I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. And it's my dad who said, well, why don't you write to record, recording studios and see if you can get a job in one of those. And the only way you could get in back though in those days, uh, which was in the early 80s, was to um, start from the very bottom making cups of tea. Uh, in America, we call them runners. In England, they're called tea boys. There wasn't many schools, I think maybe one or two at the very most, that offered audio production, audio engineering for degree courses anyway. So people really didn't go to school. It was so much more of an apprenticeship, which worked really well for me. I mean, I thought it was, I actually enjoyed every stage. I liked being the tea boy. That was a great thing to do, to, to be going into work every day and watching a band make an album. I mean, for me at that time, I couldn't think of anything I'd want to do more. And I wouldn't want to go home. They'd say, you can leave at five. And I don't want to leave. I'll just hang out. I want to carry on seeing what happens with these guitars later. Right. And I spend a lot of nights sleeping on the couch um, at the back of the remix room at the studio I worked in. And I, I just thought, Oh my God, this is just so good. I would switch the lights out in the studio, get a blanket, lie on the couch, and I could see all the lights of the Neve console in front of me like a spaceship. And I put on, I remember I put on Station to Station, the David Bowie album, and I'd listen to that for a while and just lie on there. And I just thought, I've got the dream job here. Mm. It was really magical. That's the only way I can describe it. And then from being a, a T-boy, your opportunity was then to move up to being an assistant engineer and the assistant engineer ran the tape machines. So you were in charge of when the producer said, okay, we're working on this guitar. We need you to drop into record at the beginning of the second verse and then make sure you come out for the second half because there was a lot of elements of danger in recording. Mm. And there was, there was nerves and fear, uh, which of course with Pro Tools, everything is undoable. So all that's gone now. So, You'd rewind the tape, make sure everyone was ready. Everyone ready? Put the tape into play. The guy's ready with his guitar, and you punch the recording machine into record, and then you punch it out at the required spot, and then the producer would check to make sure you'd done a good job. And as an assistant, you'd also set up microphones. You'd just basically be working with the engineer to help his job uh, be simpler and more efficient the whole day. So assisting was great. And at that point, this is how I got into the latter part of my career was I started a record in the eighties with a band called Kajagoogoo. Right. Yeah. We had a huge hit with Too Shy. Yeah. And I was the assistant engineer as they recorded the, the the rest of that album. They had that single out. Yeah. I didn't have anything to do with that. But they were recording their debut album. And the producer on the record was a guy called Colin Thurston, who'd also worked with David Bowie as an engineer many, many years ago. 
and the co-producer was Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran. And uh, I was the assistant and Colin used to really, um, used to really give me a lot of freedom to mic things up myself and, and uh, record drums myself. And he put a lot of trust in me, which was great. And then at the end of the day, um, rather than spend all night stuck in a recording studio, they both probably thought, well, I don't want to do that. So we'll, we'll leave at about seven. And they would go out with their girlfriends and stuff and they would leave me with the band to record until late um there's probably a little bit of laziness in there on their part but it, it was <laughs> and they would come in in the morning and they would check what i'd done so that was that was fine and it was a great tune for me i i didn't uh, i didn't have a problem with it and um when it came to the end of the album and it was almost complete the record company of course wanted b-sides i don't know if people remember b-sides right yeah the B-sides was something that a lot of the time the producers didn't want to deal with because it was a lot of the time an experimental, an experimental piece or something that was sort of thrown together a little quickly. But I said, oh, oh I could do the B-sides. And Colin and Nick said, yeah, just do the B-sides with Tim. That's fine. So I went in over the weekends and cut the B-sides. We did two songs and I had a few ideas for these B-sides and the record label had them delivered and they said, we love them and we want to put them on the record. So I spoke to the manager of the band and I said, I, I, I recorded these and I've added some stuff. Do you think we could have a co-production? And he said, yes, I think that would be the right thing to do. So I started off as the assistant engineer on the album and ended up being a producer on, on, on one of the key tracks on the record, which was an instrumental called Kajagooga, which was eventually used in... Um, 16 Candles. Yeah. 16 Candles. I only found that out about six months ago. I didn't even know that.
But uh, so that's that was amazing for me to be able to go from being an assistant to producing one of the great tracks on the record. And I got my first gold disc when I was, the, um, I think, 22 or something like that. Wow. Uh, from that point onwards, people started to trust me a little more and I started yeah. to engineer things. And I um, was the engineer when a new band from Virgin came in to do some mixing. I didn't know anything about them, but I was the guy just put on the session. And I mixed a song called I Just Died In Your Arms Tonight. And that became a number one song in across Europe and into America. And uh, I was the very fortunate, because uh, it could have been one of the other people at the studio. Yeah. I was the guy that mixed that song. And that, that also really was a good catalyst to persuading labels to give me work. And uh, yeah, they were the, that was sort of how I got my break. That's how it all started off, anyway. 
Yeah, I, I had Nick on a couple of years ago. Really? Um, yeah, lovely guy, really nice. And um, it's still, I think, the coolest song of the 80s. It's yes. just, I, you know, the guy wrote a, a really great song. And I say, when I speak at schools and things like that to young engineers, I always make the point of be connected to great music because you're only as good as the songs that you're mixing. Right. Who's going to listen to a song and love it just because of the quality or the fidelity? If they hear a really great song and you're part of it, even if your mix isn't so good, they're still going to love it because they yeah. love the song. Exactly. I always said that the best cure for a bad mix is a great song. Mm-hmm. That's not an excuse for bad work. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that make sure that you spend your time on stuff that people will want to listen to because that's what's going to be the determine determine how successful it is ultimately is that's the most important thing right has your like approach to mixing changed with like how the medium has evolved you know with vinyl cassettes cds and now streaming has that approach changed at all it's changed the way that i mix a lot because Back in the 80s and 90s, with the old school way that we knew music with albums, with the record companies controlling distribution and the size of budgets, people, when they made a record, were able to, if they were given that opportunity to be signed and be on a label, when you made a record, you generally made it in a pretty good studio with decent microphones, with a decent producer who's made records before, an engineer who knows what he's doing. and you had time to be able to craft what you were trying to achieve. And that time is so important because when you come to the mix, at that point, mixing was purely about balance, maybe a few tasteful reverb choices or a delay here and there, but the work had been done. These people had spent a while going through guitar amps and no, let's try a Marshall amp on that, rent in another one. They do crazy stuff, but they wanted to get the recordings just where they wanted to hear them. So the mixing was just, uh, it, was, it was still important, but it wasn't the way it is now. Now, here we are where everyone has a studio at home. Um, the recording budgets are only given to the people right at the very top. So a lot of bands have other jobs right. and they might record an album in two or three days because they can only afford a few days in the studio or they might record for a few days in the studio and do a lot of it at home. And maybe they haven't got the experience of, of, um, of production. So when I'm mixing uh, music nowadays, it's different because I see my role as finishing what they were trying to achieve. And most times when I mix these days, I'll either at the very least add to the drum sound with samples because maybe the drums don't sound that good. So I'll add some more to that. I might fix performances. If a sound is bad, I'll replay things. I'll add parts. I'll double parts. Um, sometimes you're tuning things as well. Um, basically, the mixing process is sort of halfway between producing and mixing. And I, I call it predicting. All right. <laughs> it is sort of predicting. That's exactly what you do. You listen through. And the first thing I do is I listen to what they're trying to achieve. And I listen to the song and the rough mix. And then I play around with my keyboard and my guitars and put, percussion and think, is there anything that I can do to make this even stronger? I'm not trying to put my personality or my playing on there, but if it's required, how can I do that? And uh, sometimes you're using very subtle 
sort of techniques to enhance sections, maybe a really high string that's barely heard, but when you take it out, it really, you do notice the difference, things like that, but basically trying to elevate what they've done to being a much better record. And uh, that's how mixing's changed. It's just like a whole different process. On your website, you have a, um, speaking of streaming, uh, Spotify playlist of all like, you know, artists you work with, you know, it's featuring some songs and it's, it's amazing. I discovered a bunch of artists because of that, of that playlist. And it's, you know, you have obviously the usual Pearl Jam, David Bowie, you know, uh, you two again, some of those later, some of them I've never, I heard of him, the, right. the, the Finnish band, never really listened to him. So it got me into listening to them as well as like Liz Wright, Candace Springs, like R and B gospel singers that I, wouldn't not necessarily know so how do you get involved with artists that like aren't in your comfort zone how do they like contact you are they obviously they know your work but like you can't say no right how like different is it working in particular genres of music well first of all um i've always believed that to be excited about this as a career if i had got stuck just making grunge records or metal records, you'd soon get tired out by it, to be honest. It'd be a little bit uninspiring. So I'd always try to work with different genres of music right from the beginning. And in fact, I was talking to someone about it the other day. It was actually um, Rick Beato. There's a guy who has a, a music podcast and he did a, a one two days ago about a song I produced for Tears for Fears. Okay. Um, he broke the song apart and it was fascinating to me because he explains it musically what's going on and I'm right. a guitar but I'm not in his league with no, <laughs> it's a flat ninth over a Delore yeah. you know, a certain um, scale and um, when I was thinking about getting the gig to work with Tears for Fears it was because they actually liked the records I made with Tin Machine which was so far the other way because right. Tin Machine was essentially a live band and it was exciting and just it was a performance based thing whereas tears for fears was a really thought out careful painstakingly put together uh, album and um for me that was a, a wonderful thing to be able to do both of those type of um, records and i also worked with some really heavy stuff um like sepultura and things like that and um i've always i've always enjoyed the fact that i can skip between the genres because the truth is that whatever the piece of music you're doing, you're just trying to do to bring it to the best level that you possibly can. And you can learn tricks from different types of music that you can somehow subtly bring towards like a jazz record or something like that. You could think, oh, I remember how we distorted something. And maybe if I try a little bit of distortion on this, it would be cool. And with the, the Liz Wright and um, Candice Springs and stuff like that, that came because my uh, late manager, who sadly left us last year, Sandy Robertson, he represents uh, a very, very successful producer called Larry Klein, who has won Producer of the Year at the Grammys, <clears throat> I think twice. And Larry um, was starting to work with a new mixer, and I said, I would love to, to work with Larry. And I think I've made like, I don't know, 25, 30 records with Larry. And uh, Larry's an incredible bass player. He was married to Joni Mitchell. He's worked on so many great um, recordings and I've been able to mix these jazz records for Larry and that is a much more uh, going back to what we were talking about Larry spends the time getting it right and he works with great musicians so 
that's a situation where I'm not adding stuff at the mix. I'm being very conscious of the performance and I'm using the faders a lot more because it's a more of a, a subtle movement rather than writing things in so much in the in the Pro Tools. But I've been really lucky to be able to do those records and I'm very proud of those records that I made with Larry. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been wonderful being able to sort of flit around. I mean, even now when I look at my projects I'm working on, I'm working on a blues, uh, an amazing blues guitar player called Jackie Venson from Austin. I'm working with um, a band from Finland who it's actually Vila Valo is the singer. Okay. Of that. Right. Just worked on his solo album and I've been working a lot with him. I've been working with a, a South American uh, hard rock band called Rata Blanca. Um, I've been working with a band from LA that are quite alternative called Sons of Silver and they're all completely different. I've just finished a, a piano uh, artist from Ukraine who is sort of jazzy and she's a young girl and she's super talented. And um, it's it's all mixed up and, 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 and that's what makes it fun to come into this studio because this is my little studio in Austin. This is, this is where I come in every day and having different music makes the whole thing very enjoyable. Uh, that's fantastic. And everyone check out the playlist because it's something for everybody and it's really good. I want to mention Tarja was another one. I hope yeah. I'm pronouncing her name right. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoy her music. And you mentioned Tears for Fears. They're my all-time favorite band. And yeah, so I know like their last album, Tipping Point, came out last year. I know you mixed the title track, but you also produced two of their albums, which people, I mean, kind of are split between those two albums. I absolutely love both of them, Elemental and Raul. So we'll start with Elemental. That was just the first album without Kurt Smith. And I guess people un call it the unofficial Roland solo album, but, um, and I know they take forever. To, to make you know to, to make an album but obviously the experience was good because you're still like working with them but how much pressure was on Roland because that was the first album without Kurt and just working at that pace so slowly well, there was a lot of pressure on him of course to to make a great record there's no doubt about it but there was also not so much pressure in the time because he had his own studio in Bath. Right. And he was determined to make it a great record, and we spent the time doing that. Um, it's interesting because I mentioned the podcast that came out the other day, and looking at the comments, I was blown away by how many people actually said that Elemental is one of their favorite Tears for Fears albums. And it was sort of lost, I think, with the um, with grunge coming through. And, yeah. and I think that Tears for Fears, for that moment at least, were seen as very much an 80s band. Um, because we, we felt we felt pretty good about Elemental when it was done, and I still do, but it didn't, even though it was a successful record, because it certainly was, but it, not to the level of everyone wants to rule the world. Of course, uh, yeah. Seeds of Love and everything, yeah. Which I love as well. I'm, I'm a big, massive fan. But yeah, um, but yeah um, I don't know. It's just really nice to see that so many people actually appreciate it. And a lot of musicians often say, I really really enjoyed that record and uh yeah it was a, a great experience for me because uh, it came first of all it came right off i mixed finished mixing pearl jam and went straight into tears for fears so that again was another one of those musical yeah. changes but the thing that um i'll always remember about working with roland is because he's such a great musician you, you tend to feel in awe of people who play that well and i'm a, a sort of stunt guitarist very basic simple player but sometimes being a simple player can make you play a part that 
really works well, but it's not complex. And Roland would often, I'd go into the studio before he got in and I'd play around with ideas and he would say, I love that. What is that? And I'd say, oh, it's just this little two note arpeggio. And he'd say, let's do that. Let's get that right. And let's, let's play with that for a while. And he was the first um, artist who really encouraged me to contribute musically. I played some drums on that record and, okay. and I played, you know, a, a little bit of guitar. Um, they were right. Uh, Roland was writing with a, a guy called Alan Griffiths. Al sadly is not longer with us, but Al was such a great guy, such a great um, person to be around, and an amazing musician. So he had, a, a, you know, somebody to bounce ideas off in the writing, because uh, I certainly wasn't part of the writing. They were doing that for quite a few months before I got involved. But I came in as the, the sort of breath of fresh air to sort of try and finish up this record and start, you know, really making these things. Um, complete and uh, we spent a long time on it but it was it was a great experience for me i loved it yeah i think it's i mean the highlight of that album break break it down again They, they still play that in you know concert and i love how you know kurt smith is now was part of that song which yeah. which is great the thing about kurt is that i i love that combination of the two people and i think that 
you know, it's the yin and yang, isn't it? Like yeah. uh, so many great groups, so somebody's ability to do that and somebody's ability to do that is the sum of all the parts. And I think Kurt adds so much to Tears for Fears. And I was fortunate enough when they made everybody's has a, everybody wants a happy ending. Yeah, everyone's happy ending. Yeah, Beatles sort of inspired record. And I, I love that record so much. Yeah, that was back in then, and I came in to mix that record. So okay. it was the first time I worked with Kurt and Roland, and I've worked with Kurt actually on a couple of solo records as well. And um, yeah, this this latest album is just I think it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean a lot of people like. I, I play. I played the vinyl like when it first came out. My wife's like, "Who is this?" And I'm like, "Tears for Fears." Like, doesn't sound like anything they played before. I'm like, "Yeah, I know, and it's great, you know." And it's like they they can do that. Um, the follow up, the one that you did, uh, Roland Kings of Spain, which I don't want to say it bombed, but it bombed. And I absolutely love that album. I think it's I, I like it more than Elemental, personally. You know, and it's like it's a concept album, and you know, it brought back Alita Adams, you know, for a song. And just was that experience pleasant too, working on, on that one? That was that was great, great fun making that record because we decided rather than be cooped up in the one place in Bath in England, we said, let's go to LA and make a record in LA. So, yeah. It was a lot of fun. We were working in some great studios. We had a full band um, on those records. So a lot of the backing tracks were all cut live. Um, Gayland Dorsey playing bass, who later worked with David Bowie for many, many years. Um, and my friend Brian McLeod was a, a drummer that I'd always loved, and I'd worked with him in a band called um, Wire Train years ago. Okay, yeah. So, so uh, Roland was looking for a drummer, so I said, You've got to check Brian out. So he went on to be uh, the Tears for Fears touring drummer and played on Raul. And um, yeah, it was just the whole thing was just, was just great. I loved it. And then we mixed it back at Roland's place. Oh, great. Yeah. I, one of the times I saw them was there for the Elemental tour, and they played or they played Woman in Chains, and then the Alita Adams part was done by Gail and Dorsey, and you know Roland like the crowd just wasn't feeling it at first, and then you saw Roland in the back like trying to like come on get it you know get the crowd going, and then she absolutely nailed it, uh, you know afterwards. But um, yeah, it's both both those albums are are, are fantastic. Um, the album the the band that you work one prior i guess we'll talk now pearl jam uh 10 which is probably one of the biggest albums of that decade and it's one of the best debut albums of all time um how did you get that i know i kind of know you, you worked with mother uh love bone before that was that direct yeah. yeah that's correct um i was i used to come out to la and this is the old music school times and my manager used to take me to meet a and r people that he knew and Michael Goldston was an A&R man that Sandy said, oh, you should meet Michael. You've got to talk to Michael. And I met Michael quite a few times. And then one day Michael said, oh, I have this band that I think you'd be good to mix called Mother Love Bone. So I flew out to L.A. and I mixed that album. One of the first albums that I mixed without a band around, which is quite strange, actually. Right. <laughs> LA, and they were in Seattle. And I mixed that record and Michael would come down. And uh, I sadly never got to meet them at all and before i knew it the, the singer had overdosed and sadly died and yeah andrew wood yeah everybody tells me just what a great guy and what an amazing performer he was and he certainly sounded like that from the, the record yeah. so that's basically how i ended up working with pearl jam is that i'd already had a relationship 
as far as working relationship, not uh, not a personal one because I hadn't met them. But Jeff yeah. and and I think Stone was was Stone in the Love Bone as well. But anyway, they were yeah. basically Pearl Jam were born from right. what was left of Mother Love Bone, and um, I came out. I was actually in LA making a record with a band called Neverland for Interscope, okay. which is more of a rock band, and it was that was a record where. Wasn't all happy ending. Mm. Jimmy Iovine, who is an amazing record producer and one of the most powerful men in the music industry, he decided that he didn't actually like the way that I was mixing the record, which was, it was one of the first records I've made in America, and I was completely devastated. And I, I, I said to him, "Look, well, can I at least, as producer, stay and be part of the process?" And he said, "Of course." So I had to watch somebody else mix my record, which was the first right. time to do that and I, I I was just very down and Jimmy said look I just don't think that your sensibility for mixing is right for America for a rock record mm -hmm. and I took that pretty badly but right. the next record I mixed was Pearl Jam's 10 so I, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah I mean basically I came out to LA to um, I was in LA making the Netherlands record the band came to LA and we had uh, we were taken to see the Lakers play I hung out with the band and then they said look mix one song so i mixed the song called once at a and it was the old charlie chaplin studios and they liked it and we were all on to go and start mixing the record but i, I i'd been in la a long time so i said look can we can we mix this in the uk and only because there was money in the music industry then the, the label had no problem with that and so right we'll fly everyone to london so we worked in a residential studio in the countryside called ridge farm beautiful studio residential very very old um farmhouse and aussie and and queen and people like that had worked there yeah. and i'd worked there before with a band called the mission or, or the mission uk as they call so we uh, mixed the record there in about two or three weeks and it was just a great experience and there was very little pressure on us because nobody had any expectations of right that. yeah they thought that well it's the first record we've signed pearl jam it's the first one if we get 150,000 albums great if not doesn't matter so i didn't have people looking down on me or second guessing every move you made which they probably had to for the follow-up yeah. uh, but uh yeah we we had a great time making that that record
Now, speaking of the follow-up, which was great as well, why didn't you come back to work on that one? Well, it's quite funny, actually. Um, not funny for me now. Right. <laughs> but after we finished the first album, I found a postcard the other day from the band on tour, and they said, hey, we love the album, thanks for a lot, and can't wait for you to start on the second. And I was sort of in the running. That doesn't mean to say I'd have got the gig, but I was yeah. in the running. Okay. Uh, they asked me to, to, as a sort of, I think it was a sort of test run, really. Why don't you come out to Seattle? Because we're cutting some songs for the movie Singles. Right, yeah. So I thought, okay, great, no problem. And I agreed to that. And then, literally, a few weeks later was when I was offered to work on the follow-up to the Tears for Fears album. Oh, okay. And the A&R guy, David Bates, said, you know, we need you to start immediately. And at the time, it was a choice between, look, probably one of the biggest bands in the world who i was like oh my god i can't believe i've been asked to work with tears for fears or a band that i loved working with that i thought were great who were an unknown small band from seattle yeah right so i um basically said okay i'll i'll do tears for fears and I, my manager had to do the dirty work and call up the band and say he's not going to be able to come and they were they didn't really take it very well they were they thought oh well fuck you you want to work with tears for fears over us oh wow so uh, um you know maybe i wouldn't have got the gig anyway if i'd gone out there maybe I'd, yeah. maybe i'd have got it right and i would have worked on it. and we're, hindsight's 2020 right but um but no i have nothing but good uh, things to say about working with the band some people uh or not some people the band themselves later expressed the fact that they wished the record hadn't been so um sort of produced with the reverbs and the textures that we put into that but uh, but those were decisions that we made together. Um, yeah. We came in and approved every every song. And the fact was that the grunge sound hadn't actually evolved at that moment. I wasn't thinking about the Seattle sound when I mixed 10 because it hadn't existed to me. Right. It wasn't successful. So I didn't immediately take off all the reverb and make it sound like it was dry and in your face because I was coming off records that I'd mixed in the 80s and they were about making things sound big and deep and and I, I wanted to make a great sounding record and we we i think we achieved that and people did love it for the way that it was and i think it was a nice stepping stone for radio too in a weird sort of way it certainly wasn't planned that way but to go into this new sound of complete dryness when people were listening to big sounding records pearl jam were a lovely step over because they first of all they still sounded like a rock band because they had guitar solos right so there was an element that they could recognize. And then the record sounded pretty good on the radio too. So it was a nice stepping stone over to this new way. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's turned out to be a pretty successful record. Yeah. yeah, not bad. And I guess just, you know, the, the term alternative too, which obviously giving it another option as well. So were you given like other opportunities to work with other like quote unquote grunge bands at that point? I didn't do too much grunge after that. What else did I do? I did a band called Sweetwater in Seattle. Okay. And I loved that band. I thought they were going to be huge, but they weren't. Um, I worked, I did a couple of, I did one mix for Soundgarden. Okay. I found the other day that I absolutely loved. Uh, and I, but they didn't use it. It never was used. I don't even know the band. I was asked to mix it by the A&R guy. I don't even know if the band ever heard it. But I just thought were insanely good. And yeah. I love the way that Michael Beinhorn produced those records. I mean, to me, they're records that I just go to and I just like, yeah. they're just like a benchmark for that. 
for recordings of rock bands. I mean, he's just so talented. Yeah. And that's when we go into some other bands you worked with that you know, maybe people, you know, don't know. Um, I had a um, lead singer of this band on the show, Sponge. Vinny. Oh, that's, that's yeah. Yeah. yeah, tremendous. One of my first guests on, on the show. And you, uh, you mixed Rotting Panada, right? Was that the one you did? And the follow-up, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which had the hits Plow and Molly. So that, I'm sure that was a pretty good experience too. And Ian and those guys, Joey, they're, they're, they're the best. And I went to, to Detroit and hung out with them for a couple of days. And I used to do what was always fun in those times was bands would get on to Saturday Night Live or a show like that. And it could really catapult their career um, because there wasn't that many places to hear music and the labels were able to get their artists on there. So. When a band would finish an album, I'd say, look, if you ever go on the TV um, and you need somebody to sit in the booth with the TV sound, I, I'll go. I'd love to. Basically, I was doing that because secretly I wanted to be going to these places, right? You know, hanging out with the band, having a good time. And why not? So I always offered to do that. And I was flown. We did Saturday Night Live. We did a couple of other things. And we always had such a brilliant time. And what a great band. What a great frontman Vinny is. Oh, he's, he's tremendous. They're still playing as well. They're still going. Yeah. You know, saw them a few years ago in, in New York. And yeah, it was a great show. And he's, yeah, he, he's such a nice guy. Pablo, the, the A&R man who brought me in to mix that was a guy called Pablo Matheson, who's actually just moved to Austin. So I still get to see him. But he brought me in to do that record. And uh, he was one of these A&R guys that when you meet them, you just, you know, you really match up in the music that you love. I've been friends with him ever since. It's you mentioned Austin, so we'll do the band Texas, which I absolutely love. And it was the first, their first album, right, that you worked on?
Oh, I did the first two actually. Yeah, that's weird that I'm now living in Texas because yeah. Scotland. Right. <laughs> Texas were a, a band um, formed in Glasgow, and at the time, Charlene was, I think, an 18 year old hairdresser. And right. Discovered by the bass player Johnny McElhern, who had been in other bands like um, um, Hipsway, was one of them. Yep. And um, the, the Altered Images, that was it. That's right, yeah. So Johnny was a pretty seasoned bass player and a good writer. And he started to write songs with Charlene, and they had a very young guitar player called Ali McElhern, who's also from Scotland. And uh, yeah, we made these records for Phonogram. And uh, it was, it was interesting for me because they tried to make it with a couple of other producers. So I was, I was sort of being tested out to make sure that I could do this. And uh, it came out great. And we, they, their first single was a top 10 single in the UK called I Don't Want a Lover. And right. the album, then I made the follow up. And uh, yeah, they were, they were both very successful records. And uh, yeah, great for me. I still chat with Charlene on the old Instagram. And yeah. But yeah, they've done, had an amazing career. Yeah, they weren't too too big in the states. I think I discovered them like on their fourth album. Yeah, so I mean they're crossed over here, and that was interesting because a lot of the bands didn't cross over here the way that I expected. When there was a time in the eighties when just because they were from England, they would get a good shot over here. Yeah, it sort of I think it sort of stopped around Tears for Fears time. Um, around that period, then bands started to become big in the, in the UK, but didn't it didn't necessarily mean that they would be big in America. And it sort of came back again around Britpop, I think, with Oasis. So that started to happen more automatically. But yeah, bands like uh, The Mission UK, I thought were going to do really well in America. Yeah. And there was a band also called The House of Love, which I thought. Right, yeah. I thought they would do much better than they did. But uh, yeah, it was a. Yeah. And then one who. I don't think they made it too big here, but I absolutely love the sounds. You were, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're crossing the Rubicon album, which is great. They have the song No One Sleeps When I'm Awake. And they, I forgot where they're from. I, I forgot what country. Sweden, aren't they? Sweden, yes. I was going to say Finland. That's right. I, yeah, from, from Sweden. And they're absolutely fantastic. So well, what was that like working with them? Well, that was, um, that was when I started to work on my own. Oh, okay. And I had a little studio in North Hollywood. And that was a project that was sent to me. And, and uh, yeah, I think they're a great band. Them. Yeah, and I guess we'll end with the biggest band in the world, you too. Right. Uh, yeah, so um, working on all that you can't leave behind. Uh, God, almost twenty five years ago now. It's, it's crazy that, <laughs> and you know they're still going strong. So, how did how did you get that gig? Mixing that album. I'll tell you how I got that gig, and I'll also answer. That'll bring me to answer one of your earlier questions about people being taskmasters. Okay. <laughs> Working with you two to get a mix accepted has to first of all be loved by each individual member of the band. There's no point in getting Bono and the Edge to like it. Right. If Larry doesn't like it, it's not going to fly. Or Adam. So, first of all, you have to make sure that all the band like it. And then, of course, you have to consider the opinions of Daniel Lanoir and Brian Eno. Right. So, you have the label with Jimmy Iovine. And, uh, and, then, and then there's always what you think of it. So there's a lot of people. <laughs> and sometimes we would spend uh, two weeks on a on a mix of a song because they don't they don't give up until they, they it's exactly the way they want it. And you could be working on a mix for two weeks and Bono will decide that 
he doesn't like the way Edge is playing a guitar and there was a part that Edge remembers playing in France six months ago and he'll find it on a cassette in a bag and then you'll be recording guitars for a couple of days. I mean, they, they won't stop. Right. And they'll also be right at the last minute saying, well, this song's pretty good, but the chorus is good and this song's pretty good, but the verses are not good. So let's combine the two songs again and re-record the whole song that wow. we months doing and make one song out of them and uh, they i mean they'll try everything yeah so that's that is a project that i remember uh, a band being the taskmasters on and it took took a long time to to do i only ended up i probably did four songs or four or five songs and they all took a long time but the reason i got it is a funny story in itself because my manager as i said sandy um said to me um look i've heard that um in excess singer who had sadly just recently died michael hutchins yeah solo album coming out and the guy at the label needs some mixing done on the last three or four songs and i said okay let me hear the stuff it sounds good and he said look it's it's more than that it's great and i said why why do you say that he said well one of the tracks has bono contributing right and michael hutchins and i said okay that's cool and he said no no it's not just cool he said if you do an amazing job on this, then obviously Bono will hear it and you'll be mixing on the new U2 album. And I was like, all oh, right. Okay. Yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> it's just like that, Sandy. And anyway, that's exactly what happened. Wow. We finished this song and Bono had been really unhappy with it. And he called me up in the studio and, and, and said, look, thank you so much for saving this song because I was really unhappy and I think it's great now. And, uh, you know, you'll hear from me because we're starting to mix our new record. And I was blown away by that. Um, it really worked out that way. But they, uh, yeah, I had a good time working on the Michael Hutchins songs. And I still really like this. Uh, um, there's a song called Slip Away. Slide Away, I should say. And um, that's the one Bono sings on. And right. uh, it's, a great, it's a great track.
So then it was a chance to work on a U2 song and I was given a song to mix from a movie that they had been doing the soundtrack to called The Million Dollar Hotel. And I did a song called The Ground Beneath Her Feet. And it was quite a challenge because I was on my way into the studio and I hadn't met the band at this point. They sent me the tapes and Bono called me up on my cell phone on the way to the studio and he was quite vague but he said look we don't really like the drums and is there something you can do and I didn't really quite know what he was talking about because I hadn't even pushed the faders up of the song yet and I said I didn't want to seem like I wasn't prepared so I said oh absolutely no problem yeah I'll get that sorted so when I listened through there was a lot of programmed drums and I thought okay maybe that's what maybe that's what he doesn't like and Larry comes in at the end so I thought okay well Maybe I'll try a sort of groove, like Walk on the Wild Side. Right. And I, I thought, what I'll do is I'll rent a drum kit, just a snare and some cymbals. So I played like a Walk on the Wild Side, simple drum groove, and looped it, and replaced the drums that were there with this loop. And it was sort of taking a bit of a chance, because I quite imagined Larry hearing it and saying, who the fuck does this guy think he is mm-hmm. on my song? So um, I knew that it could go pear-shaped for me. But that's one of the things about being a mixer is you just got to do what you think's right and hope that they agree. And anyway, they liked it and, uh, and it stayed. And I love that track, The Ground Beneath the Feet. If you haven't heard it, um, some amazing pedal steel from Daniel Lamoire in the intro section is so beautiful.
song's cool and because they liked that song I was asked to go and mix a few more songs. I started them in LA, finished them in Dublin. I spent like a couple of months in Dublin. Yeah, it was the whole experience was really great. Um, and we would have dinner every night around this huge round table. Hmm. Had all the members of the band, yeah. and different mixers, and it was just really interesting conversation. Really interesting. That's awesome. And they also have the money to uh, take their time in in the studio. So. <laughs> Yeah, and that's why it, it was so. Uh, it was, the pressure was on because they would mix songs with different people just because they wanted to see what it would come out like. Right. You can afford it, so let's get this guy to do a mix. And sometimes they would do a mix with a uh, a famous mixer, and they would be like, "Well, we just like the first two bars. There's something magical that's happening." So that two bars would end up as being part of the final mix, and they'd have to figure out all the credit stuff later. But they could they could afford the luxury of getting different people working on different songs all the time. There was a lot of people working on that record. But to tie this to the beginning of the show, the World Convention, David Bowie Fan Convention, actually this weekend, New York City. I think it might be sold out already. Can you know, maybe scalp a couple of tickets? Check StubHub, check you know, eBay, whatever. Um, are you going to be on particular panels? Like, like what's your like role going to be there? Well, there's some. As I said at the beginning, there's some amazing people great musicians like Carlos Alomar and, and Woody Woodmansey. And um, you've got like Tony Visconti, who produced all the David Bowie albums I love. He's speaking, so I'm looking forward to hearing him. Um, I'm speaking about my time working on the Tin Machine um, records and Kevin Armstrong, who was the guitar player in Tin Machine, inside Reeves. He's going to be talking with me. And I, what I've been working on, actually, just before I came on to talk to you, is I've, I've got... I'm very fortunate to have a lot of home movie footage uh, of the making of the Tin Machine records. Oh, wow. Wandering around the studio, looking at the setups, a bit of different studios around the world. And the audio is not very interesting and not very good quality. But what I thought was, while we're talking, if I put it in the background on some screens, just as you yeah. talk about the record, if you can see the studio and you can see the console, it'll, be, it'll yeah. make it... 3D experience. Right. So I've been cutting it together and putting some quotes that David Bowie said about the project on, and I'm going to show that during, um, during the talks. We're doing two talks on Tin Machine. And then lastly, that I, I also recorded the very first time Tin Machine played a show. Okay. No one's ever seen. We went to a, a nightclub in, in the middle of Nassau and they just borrowed some guitars and equipment and they mm -hmm. set up and played to the, the crowd there. And it was and I was doing the sound that night and uh, I got a friend to video it and I managed to get a, a DAT of the sound recording and sync it up to my video. So oh, wow. it's pretty cool because I've got three songs the first time no one's ever seen them before. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. But yeah, have a lot of fun. And Tim, this was an honor. I've been a fan of things you worked on for like decades. So keep up the good work and I look forward to the next project. Thank you for the kind words and I really enjoyed talking to you. And a special thanks to Tim for joining me today. Go check out his Spotify playlist, Tim Palmer Producers Slash Mixer. His website is timpalmer.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first noel 19 or like the page Really My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. 
shows on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, basically wherever you can find a podcast. A new episode comes in every week. Stay safe, everybody. See you then.